A man in the state of Eros really hasn't leisure to think about sex. He is too busy thinking of a person. The fact that she is a woman is far less important than the fact that she is herself. If you asked him what he wanted, the true reply would often be to go on thinking of her. He is love's contemplative. This is Pints with Jack, Season 5, Episode 19. The Four Loves, Chapter 5, Eros, Part 1. Good morning, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast where three friends, Andrew, David, and Matt, break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. And this season, we're talking about love, slowly and deliberately working our way through The Four Loves, where Lewis writes about affection, friendship, romance, and charity. Good morning, gentlemen. Let's uh, kick things off with some life updates. And I think we should begin with the lead singer of the grunge band, <laughs> The Hefty Phlegm, Mr. Matthew Bush. <laughs> Thank you for that introduction, everybody. It's a privilege and honor to be here. Yeah, uh, I do feel like it is subsiding. I am the, the cough, the COVID cough is gone. So hopefully uh, the lead singer uh, dies. Um, <laughs> I don't have a ton of life updates because we are coincidentally a little uh, recording a lot in a short time period. But wanted to use this time for just some some prayers. I haven't done that as much, but uh, there's some individuals that I know that have been struggling with fertility stuff. And I'll leave it pretty vague because that's uh, their journey. But um, could definitely use some prayers. It's been a, a multi year struggle, and I know that's that's just a very hard thing. And then also just. Very unfortunately, in my life, uh, various people uh, close to me, uh, there's been some alcoholism stuff that has popped up, and just asking for prayers with that. And you know, we're we're pints with Jack. We we drink on here, but we're very aware of you know moderation and the dangers of of alcohol they can be. And I think when you witness it and see people close to you, it's just something to always take seriously. And uh, just ask for prayers in general for people uh, with that on that journey and uh, just being in solidarity uh, with them. And then finally, uh, I guess this would be sort of an update. I've been really taking seriously after two years, no more COVID excuse, but trying to build a community in San Diego or uh, in Grand Rapids, similar to what I had in San Diego. It was a really robust Catholic community there. And I just haven't had that in Grand Rapids. And I, I know that's been a reason for various struggles because we were just called out to need community. They're built to need community and just not having that's been tough. So I've been taking that a lot more seriously and gotten plugged into a few things really fast, thanks to a priest. And so I just ask for prayers there and anyone in general who's trying to build community, pray uh, for yourself to have that come. I think it was when I heard Father Mark Mary mention that praying for friends, it was just such a profound thing. And I was like, yeah, I don't actually ever do that. Um, <laughs> this case is not friends. I have a lot of really blessed friends, but in this new area, having some very close uh, Catholic brothers is uh, lacking at this stage. Yeah, no, I appreciate what you what you had to say, especially about alcoholism. Um, I'm grateful for the role that Al-Anon has played in my own life. Um, anytime that you have been in relationship with alcoholics or have had alcoholic alcoholism affect you and you're not alcoholic yourself, uh, the recovery in those meetings has been precious. And so I can attest to the life-changing nature of uh, some of the healing that can happen. And yes, we are pints with Jack, but I heartily endorse um, healthy, godly relationship 
with alcohol, even if that's uh, often if that's no alcohol at all. So um, going on record for that. Yes, uh, wonderful conversation yesterday with a German scholar named Norbert Feinendagen. He and I have been fighting in print and in person or, you know, via Zoom for a couple of years now about the dating of C.S. Lewis's theistic conversion. And he has read uh, my uh, my edit my edition of Early Prose Joy carefully, and so we get on the on the Zoom for an hour and a half and have wonderful um, arguments and fights and details and 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 discussions, and we end up agreeing on, of course, much more than we disagree on. And um, we are currently kind of mapping out, looking at conversion as a process for Lewis, and so mapping out the dates and the things that he said, and, and so I think that it's much less uh, an, an experience like an evangelical could uh, relate to this kind of crashing conversion, but this this ongoing process, even of his, his Christian conversion and his long night talk with Tolkien. Fascinating stuff. Plans well underway for Oxbridge, the Oxbridge Conference and the Oxbridge Pilgrimage. So I'll be going to Oxford with um, Northwind Seminary in mid-July and then staying on for the Oxbridge Conference so looking forward to that. Just had some chat the other day with Patty Callahan about her plans to be there and uh, marvelous uh, things. So cslewis.org can, uh, can get you, um, get you to the, the Oxbridge conference. And, um, I, I don't even remember the Northwind seminary site, but you can search that. Um, and just would, would love to entreat prayers. Um, I've passed all my exams and interviews and now over the next couple of months, we're just waiting on the Lord and the diocese to tell us, uh, where we will be released to serve, um, for the next at least couple of years. And that's a nerve wracking time. We haven't known, we still don't know, um, but we are just praying that the Holy Spirit will lead us exactly where he wants us to be. And Andrew, they will be every place that you could go will be blessed by your presence. Well, I'll receive those words. Uh, finally, I just want to say I got a wonderful new icon uh, today, a gift from my friend Christine Hales, uh, who did my Lewis icon, and um, just a wonderful birthday, belated birthday gift and time with her. And we drank tea, proper tea. Glad to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> David, what about you? Well, at the time that this episode will be released, my friends Joe and Kylie will be on their honeymoon, and I will have just attended their wedding, which I'm rather looking forward to, uh, very appropriately timed as well. Uh, I also saw, speaking of retreats in Oxbridge, the Montreat retreat has moved. It's now going to be in September, and that's much better for me. So <laughs> I think Marie and I will definitely be going and we will probably assemble a little posse. So we'll be working that out over Slack, anyone who's on there. Um, what else? Oh, while I was preparing for this episode on Eros, I went looking through The Theology of the Body. And it, this is a, it's a big book uh, by St. John Paul II, Pope St. John Paul II. And it's a collection of his Wednesday audiences. Basically, every Wednesday, the Pope preaches and he taught a very long series about the theology of our bodies, of our incarnated nature, about men, women, and marriage. And it's based on a book that he wrote before that called Love and Responsibility. And as I was flicking through, I came across this wonderful definition of friendship. Lewis, please take note. Friendship, <laughs> as has been said, consists in a full commitment of the will to another person with a view to that person's good. Mm. I think that's rather good. 
<laughs> I don't think that Lewis needs to take note. I think that um, that John uh, Saint Pope John Paul II the Great uh, took note of Lewis. Uh, and in fact, if you look at the footnotes in Theology of the Body, he refers uh, quite often to the Four Loves. Um, and then awesome. I always loved hearing the story from Walter Hooper, who was an Anglican priest and went uh, before he became Roman Catholic. And he went to visit the Pope. And there's a marvelous picture. There was a marvelous picture in Walter's house of um, him uh, shaking hands with the Pope. And the Pope leaned in and said to Walter, Walter, do you still love your friend C.S. Lewis? And so uh, I believe uh, St. John Paul uh, absolutely was familiar with Lewis and, and, and echoed throughout with, with some of what was going on. So good quote, good grab. <laughs> I think two things. I'm actually reading his Love and Responsibility right now. And I think to confirm what you're saying, Andrew, I'm pretty sure he quoted Lewis all the time. Like I think he read most of his books and loved Lewis. If I, if I had read that or heard that somewhere properly, I want to see as any wise, saintly, and godly person would do. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Agreed. Well, I don't have a whole lot else to add except uh, I do have an iTunes review to share from M. Keeley. I love the wit and fun you guys have in going through the works of C.S. Lewis. I just started listening to this podcast a couple of months ago, and I go between this and the White Horse Inn in the mornings as a form of devotions. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you, M. Keeley. And I hope that it's the White Horse Inn podcast, because uh, mm -hmm. if you I were going so. to the White Horse Inn in the mornings uh, to the pub, I would be quite jealous of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, since unlike the last episode, we're not recording first thing in the morning, I'm drinking Inch Murrin, I think that's how you pronounce it, Madeira Wood Finish. This is uh, one of the Matt specials, but it came in a special box, so this one might be better. Who knows? <laughs> We're going to make the attention on you with this then, because I, I actually don't have anything. Uh, came from a work call right before this, and plus being in Savannah, I don't have any of my scotches. So, um, just water. I'm also away from my scotches. I'm drinking... Water in a um, Tervis uh, cat cup that says, check, check me out. <laughs> uh, and as I'm, uh, as we're wrapping up our time here in Sarasota, I thought I'd finish off my last stout. So I have poured a nice uh, dark glass of Guinness uh, in the afternoon here to, uh, to, to toast you all with. Lovely. Well, would you mind toasting Bill and Joanna Martell? Yes. Two of our patron supporters. Bill and Joanna, thank you. And God bless your marriage as we talk about, uh, I assume, your marriage as we talk about Eros. May, may God's blessings and closeness come to you um, through each other. And uh, cheers to you. Cheers. cheers. David, what's the verdict? Hmm. You know what? I quite like this one. Ooh. You're not just saying that, are you? Very, very warm, sweet, a little bit of a burn. Hmm. Or one yeah. for eight. I, I approve. I, I approve of that one. Good. <laughs> well, let's recap the first four chapters now of The Four Loves. In the introduction, we heard that when love becomes a god, it becomes a demon. We also learned about gift love and need love. Then in the next chapter, we read about the love of nature and country, as well as hearing about appreciative love. Then we read about the first of The Four Loves, affection, storgy the love of the familiar. And we read that this goes bad when it's assumed, when it becomes consuming or obnoxious. 
And we then spent all of last month talking about philia, friendship. And since this was the most recent chapter, I'm going to recap this in a little bit more detail. So earlier in the month, we read how friendship was prized in antiquity, but it's mostly ignored today. Uh, We distinguish friendship from eros, companionship, and allyship. We said that it was uninquisitive, humbling, and not very jealous. And we considered whether friendship is beneficial to society or the individual. And we said that it can exist between the sexes, but only where there is companionship already. Then, last week, we wrapped up the chapter by looking at some of the objections offered against philia, and in so doing, we examined it in a little bit more deep detail. And we saw that friendship is emboldening, either for good or ill. We saw that it causes deafness to outsiders, once again, for good or for ill. And unfortunately, we saw that it can sometimes lead to different kinds of pride. And we then, after that, considered Lewis's claim that it's rarely used in scripture to describe the relationship between God and man, and why that might be. And we wrap things up by considering the role of divine providence in the selection of our friends, and hinted at what might be needed in order to save friendship from its various perversions. Anything else worth adding? Yeah, the only thing I would add is, as I mentioned with a couple of the truths that really stuck out to me, combined with my own personal experience, there's such a power and a beauty to friendship and really high quality friendships that encourage, that build up, that help sanctify us on this journey. And then when you when you combine that with the end of the chapter of the, the the part that it's chosen by divine providence, it just reminded me of the episode in Poco a Poco podcast where Father Mark Mary says, pray for really high quality friendships. And I don't think we pray for those enough. And so we, we had that conversation a little bit of what's the role of trying to find them yourself in divine providence. And I think one of those answers is just deep prayer uh, and surrender to God on that. I'd only also add um, two things uh, very briefly. Matt and I were chatting just before we started. Um, uh, He said, I think this is my favorite chapter yet. And he's so clear and lays down the lines and the distinctions about the kinds of relationships. And that to me is one of the real glories of this book. It really helped me to understand things categorically in a way that I think is very practical. It's not just a, an artificial structure I think Lewis is, is tossing up. I also love the fact that he's writing this after having experienced all four of the loves. And um, I said to Matt, I think that uh, each chapter will become your favorite um, as you return to it when you have need of that particular love or that particular outlook um, uh, in life. And so that's, uh, I just resonated with what Matt said. That's, that's the categorical strength and goodness of this book. So helpful. I also wonder if maybe Lewis's statement, not only that love becomes a demon when it becomes a god, but I find something very hopeful in love ceasing to be a demon when it ceases to be a god. And so by our correction, we can put the loves in their proper place. And so love certainly can be tyrannical and demonic, but um, but love wants to resolve into its proper place and to serve us. So I find help in uh, in that concept too. So, what about a summary for this first uh, first bit of the penultimate chapter of the book? Here we go. Lewis introduces the Greek word eros to describe romantic love and distinguishes it from its carnal element, which he calls Venus. Jack says that the presence of eros is not necessary for Venus and does not make Venus automatically moral. He notes that Venus may precede or follow Eros, but he thinks it's usually the latter, 
with Eros transforming a need pleasure into the most appreciative of loves, and even becoming a mode of perception. Venus by itself seeks pleasure, but Eros seeks the person. Lewis ends by rejecting the common assumption that Eros's chief danger lies in its carnal element. Well, let's talk about sex. I mean, Eros. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, let's talk about Eros. And uh, in case any listeners listen to this podcast in the presence of younger ears, uh, we're going to be dealing with some sensitive subjects over the course of this month. I mean, after all, this is the very material that got Lewis into so much trouble with the Episcopal bishops. So in preparation to talk about Eros uh, and to give you a little bit of time to get some headphones if you need them, I'm going to have Taylor put in some smooth jazz. <laughs> well, that's a Marvin oh. Gaye. Kenny G.S. Lewis. Ooh, Kenny G. <laughs> that would be a good one. Yeah, we, c- we can't afford the rights to Marvin Gaye. <laughs> okay, Lewis begins the chapter by describing and defining what is Eros. He says it's romantic love, the state of being in love, and he distinguishes this from sexuality saying that sexual experience can take place with Eros or without Eros. And also, while sexuality is an important element in Eros, it's not the only element. And Lewis calls the carnal element Venus. And in his essay on Edmund Spencer, he says that in medieval allegory, Cupid was typically used for love, but Cupid's mother, Venus, for mere sexual appetite. And Jack is making these distinctions between Eros and Venus in order to limit the scope of the chapter. He's not going to be talking about mere sexuality just by itself, because what he cares about is Eros. The linguistic definition and distinction is really important. There's even, I think, a subtler distinction Lewis is making, because Eros is the Greek god, uh, son of Aphrodite, the Greek god of love. Um, His Roman counterpart is Cupid. And uh, Cupid's mother is Venus, Eros's mother is Aphrodite, and so by choosing two different, completely different languages for these concepts, I think he's really trying to sh- draw a real defining line. These words are also loaded throughout our language um, with derivatives, and so we know the word erotic or aphrodisiac, those come from Eros and Aphrodite, cupidity or concupiscence. Um, is a desire, sexual desire, and that comes from Cupid. Uh, Venus is the root, uh, the root for the word venereal disease. It's a disease uh, related to this goddess of love and sex. So um, he's really making some some linguistic distinctions. And uh, guys, get your drinks to hand because you'll remember <laughs> that the god of the mountain is the equivalent of the son of Aphrodite. Uh, the fox says that Unget, in Till We Have Faces, is uh, their version of Aphrodite. And so Unget's son would be their version of Eros. And so as he's talking about Eros, it wouldn't be, I think, harmful at all to think about Eros's relationship with Psyche in that book, especially if, as I, as I propose, Lewis is kind of rewriting in prose uh, that novel. Matt and I have been drinking throughout that little soliloquy, so this is going to be a great episode. (laughs) I'm joining you. (laughs) Now, one can't talk about Eros or Venus without bringing up the issue of morality. 
And Lewis affirms, he says, I'm not at all subscribing to the popular idea that the absence or presence of Eros, uh, that this is what makes the sexual act impure or pure, degraded or fine, lawful or unlawful. And he notes that in the past, many marriages were arranged by the parents and had very little to do with Eros. And powered by only Christian duty and animal desire, husbands and wives came together in the marital embrace and they raised their families. And he points out that unions which come from a, what he calls them, soaring and iridescent eros, and even those that seem to care little about the sense experience itself, he says that these can still be morally reprehensible. They can involve deception, betrayal, and adultery. And in a section which I wish would be read at every marriage preparation, he says, It does not please God that the distinction between a sin and a duty should turn on fine feelings. This act, like any other, is justified or not by far more prosaic and definable criteria, by the keeping or breaking of promises, by justice or injustice, by charity or selfishness, by obedience or disobedience. So gentlemen, what do you what do you make of Lewis's lexicon here? Well, I loved and really appreciated that last part that he had pointed out of the morality side of that, especially today in culture. I can't speak to during his time period, but today so much of the sexual act is determined good or bad based on, well, we were, we were deeply in love or we got caught up in emotions and like that, that means it's good. Um, and so I just appreciated that he made that distinction. Kind of reminds me of that section on marriage in mere Christianity, where he talks about the marriage vows. It's, you don't vow feelings, you vow justice. <laughs> You're going to keep your promises. Right. Because if you vow feelings, that's a vow that will soon break itself uh, without you even having to trouble uh, breaking it. Um, and remember in your Christianity, Lewis says, our feelings come and go. God's love for us does not. Um, I think it, it, elsewhere in Lewis's work, um, he talks about the rise of love marriage now, love has been around for thousands of years and is the topic of most of the best poetry throughout history in every language. But the idea that one should get married to somebody to whom they have a certain set of romantic feelings and sexual attraction is relatively new in Western civilization. And as Lewis points out, it corresponds with the rise of the novel. Um, the novel is about two, 250 years old. Um, as a as an accepted genre, and so is the idea of love marriage. Now, I'm talking in broad generalities, and you can find all kinds of exceptions, um, but I think you see a great example of this in Fiddler on the Roof, where uh, Tevya asks his wife, do you love me? And she says, well, I do I love you? I've been doing this duty for you for 25 years. I've washed your clothes and all the rest. And these uh, this idea of arranged marriages where you are not getting married because of how you feel and what your attractions are, especially as a younger person, but you're getting married because the wisdom of a loving, hopefully godly community has helped choose an appropriate partner for you. And then you go into it saying, okay, well, I'm going to make a vow and then I'm going to choose to keep the vow and hope that attraction and love will follow, this is not a bad basis for marriage. And when I taught college, I had a number of students from the Middle East um, who had arranged marriages. And it's we, we dismiss it out of hand, but it's a relatively recent development and worth examining. Okay, Led. I wanted to see if Matt was going to say ask us to set him up with somebody, but okay, well, we will move on. <laughs> this is my problem, David. 
<laughs> actually i i you, should choose your wife it would be great trust me <laughs> you got you guys might get a kick out of this i was uh, here and my buddy's dad we were sitting around the fireplace and i was talking about my matt rigidity you know we, we give david a hard time but matt's life is pretty mapped out habitually daily in my sleep schedule and, and he literally he, he actually goes to christian as christian's dad goes to christian when i'm not there and says you really need to make sure Matt like stops going to bed at eight thirty and waking up at four thirty because he's never going to meet a woman. And when Christian tells me this later and goes, he was genuinely concerned. Um, <laughs> and so I guess the the reason I bring that up is because clearly my mind is just not in the right place for any of this. Because uh, David, I'm just I wasn't even, I didn't even pick up on that cue. <laughs> so what I've been I've been telling you for years, you need to stay up later. I told you you need to dance. You have started doing that. Next thing I'm you do, a great dance poetry, and then we can have all of this sorted. But hey, compromise. Take what you can get. The dance I'm here came. to say, Matt, there aren't any formulas, and just keep keep pursuing the heart of God, and keep pursuing uh, those qualities that make you Christ-like, and that will bring, um, in God's timing, exactly what He wants into your life. I, I, you know, I've tried to follow all the formulas myself, and they they certainly didn't work. And so, um, yeah, my wife would love somebody who went to bed at eight thirty. So. <laughs> All right, let's push on, because Lewis assumes that the evolutionist would say that Eros in humans just grows out of Venus, that human romance is a product and maturation of animal sexuality, a late complication and development of the immemorial biological impulse. However, Jack says that we can't assume that this is also true for each individual person. While a man may initially feel sexual attraction towards a woman and later fall in love with her, like Richard Gere in the movie Pretty Woman, it might instead work the other way around. And Jack actually thinks that this is more common. And I will say, if at times Lewis comes across as a little clinical when it comes to love and uh, the necessity of, uh, of soaring feelings, I would say that what he says next is well worth remembering. He says, very often what comes first is simply a delighted preoccupation with the beloved a general, unspecified preoccupation with her in her totality. A man in this state really hasn't leisure to think of sex. He is far too busy thinking of a person. The fact that she is a woman is far less important than the fact that she is herself. If you ask him what he wanted, the true reply would often be to go on thinking of her. He as loves contemplative. Hmm. I'm so pleased that Andrew chose this as the quote of the week, because it is one of the most delightful passages in this entire book. Mm-hmm. And I, I love I love when any time a person uses the language the beloved. To me, that's just such a beautiful that word encompasses so much. And mm. so I, I love that he used that here to think about your significant other, your spouse, as the beloved. And mm. because that's the way Christ thinks of us. It's his beloved. And so I just think that that word packs a punch. Well, and I love this distinction that that we'll reiterate, uh, that eros is romance, is falling in love. Venus, as Lewis is portraying it, is the sexual component. And I think that he's uh, he's got the nail, he's hit the nail on the head, at least in, in my experience, that the overwhelming sense um, when I first met Christian, Kristen was was one of romance, was one of wanting to go on thinking about her, wanting to go on communicating with her. The sexual impulse was easy to curb because A, it was secondary, and B, 
I, I hardly even wanted to, to think about that component. I just wanted to spend time, you know, with this person. And so I think that if you see, and Lewis talks about it later in the chapter, if you see a couple for whom Venus, the, the, the physical part of, of marriage is absolutely central, uh, that's something that's going to, going to prove problematic soon. And so this is where I really think that Lewis is, is helpful. He also is, uh, I think in some ways, reacting to his own um, his own experience with Joy Davidman. They were fast friends and would always have been together creating a scandal had Lewis not married her. That's Lewis's own admission. And so what he wanted to do was to go on thinking about Joy. The fact that they had the physical and sexual part of their relationship was, was wonderful and important, um, but it followed suit after the, the emotional part that came charging in. I'm curious, you guys, this in this section, and, and David, you didn't necessarily explicitly state it, but at the end, it talks about how in, in conjunction with this uh, Eros overwhelming Venus and this this concept that you have the Eros and the Venus comes, he mentions at the end that it, it like reorganizes Venus. Eventually, as it slowly penetrates through the different stages, it eventually touches the Venus, the sexual. And I was curious what you guys thought, like the before and after was. So what is the Venus prior to it? And what is it after it? Like, what do you think he specifically means by reorganizing it after Venus has been, call it, touched by Eros? I'll take a quick stab at this. I would say that prior to Eros, just think about when you were first, say, introduced to sex. It was something fascinating and terrifying and interesting. And that was where your focus was. But what Eros does is it, as he says in the chapter, it you turn from it to the person. That when you encounter somebody who you just want to go on thinking about, it completely reorients what that actually is. You think about it in very, very different terms. And I won't go into too much detail, but that was definitely true for me in my run-up to marriage. Sort of, the, the honeymoon was, an, uh, for me, something of an afterthought. It was just like, oh, yeah, this is our life now. This, this now changes. Because that hadn't been where my head had been. It was, it was, I'm going to go on thinking about Marie and I'm going to do that till death do us part. Hmm. He is full of desire, but the desire may not be sexually toned. If you asked him what he wanted, and remember that word means to lack as well as to desire, the true reply would be to go on thinking of her. I think it's later in the chapter, so we'll touch on it again. But he says, when a man says that what he wants is a woman... He really doesn't want a woman in all of her complexity and totality. Um, he usually means he wants that part of a woman that is the apparatus to fulfilling his own desire. And once he has had that, he casts it aside like an empty packet of cigarettes. Um, and so I think that this is that that Eros does a better job of putting Venus in its place than Venus can of putting Eros in its place. And so if you have a relationship that's primary sexual, that's the greatest intimacy that one can ever have. And that's an inappropriate intimacy outside of marriage because the emotional part and the intellectual part and the personalities haven't gotten the chance to knit together in a way that makes Venus a reward. Venus outside of marriage and too quickly promotes this, um, this kind of intimacy that's not appropriate to the stage of the relationship. So if what you want to do is go on and and that's part of why um in the in in the medieval period or whatever when you didn't get married 
um, you didn't have sex until you got married. Part of that is because it demoted the Venus as this kind of primary driver. If I know that I can't get divorced and I once I if I want to, to be sexually active with this person, I have to marry her and be with her for the rest of my life for him, um, for, for women, then you're going to not be so hasty to jump into that bed and jump into that relationship. And so it's the natural fruit of an intimacy that has been growing that's primarily emotional and then intellectual. To go on thinking about her and to be overwhelmed, this is emotion and thinking. And the physical part comes in later as in some ways a servant as it should be. But like you said, Matt, we don't see that anywhere in our society. It's totally flipped on its head. And Lewis has got some great, poignant, wonderful metaphors for that later on in the chapter. So that's kind of my take for that. And that kind of touches on some of your other points about sexualized culture. Mm-hmm. And I, I would say that. that actually the next section unpacks this a little bit because Lewis now considers what happens when Eros isn't present. And he reviews a few lines from dialogue in George Orwell's 1984. And he concludes, sexual desire without Eros wants it, the thing itself, the sensory pleasure. Eros wants the beloved. I would say that's the big reorganization that happens. Your, your, your focus and your means and your ends, they change. That's what I would have, that would have been a close second that uh, for the quote of the week, if I was choosing it, I thought that was just so succinct, so beautiful. And can be used as a litmus test, honestly, of lust versus love. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you want, do you want the thing or do you want the beloved? And, and mm-hmm. Andrew, connecting off of the one thing you mentioned earlier of not wanting a woman, you, you spoke of a, the, the negative way that he talks about it, but then he also later does the positive way. And he says, when someone is doing it out of arrows, they don't want a woman, they want a particular woman. And I love how he got that specific. It's not even like they're looking for uh, 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 an upstanding person. It's like, I want a particular one. Well, and if you think about it as totality, I mean, even in the most vibrant and healthy sexual relationship between a married couple, that's going to take up, I don't know what, five, five hours a week. Um, But to want the person is going to take up a lifetime. It takes a lifetime to, to really be intimate with somebody on an emotional and intellectual level. And so uh, I think that we certainly have things way out of balance. And all of those other things, particularly when there are other loves at play, they enrich it, mm-hmm. ultimately. And this is where we get to the section that you alluded to earlier, Andrew, uh, about how we speak about a lustful man on the prowl. The idiom that Lewis says that we use is he wants a woman, but it's not actually a woman that he wants. He wants the pleasure, and a woman just happens to be the necessary piece of apparatus for that pleasure. And in a... Ugh, cutting brutal line he says <laughs> how much the man cares about the woman as such may be gauged by his attitude to her five minutes after fruition and then he says one does not keep the carton after one has smoked the cigarettes mm. wow that's a that vivid is image vivid pointed direct um that's i mean lewis every book i feel like lewis has spots where it's like litmus test this is a litmus test to understand it and this the, the line before we were talking about of the thing itself versus the beloved and this are just two incredible listeners. They're like looking at a mirror and something you have to ask yourself. It's like, dang. And I've got a couple of JP2 quotations. I'm going to use that as a shorthand rather than saying Pope St. John Paul II the Great. Uh, <laughs> in Love and Responsibility says, a person's rightful due is to be treated as an object of love, not as an object for use. 
treating a person as a means to an end and an end moreover, which is in the, this case pleasure, the maximization of pleasure will always stand in the way of love. Well, and you think about this um, with the divine metaphor of us being the bride of Christ, right? It's not that he wants us um, for what pleasure he can get from us, but he wants to go on thinking about us and he wants us to belong fully to him. And there's that integration and intimacy of emotion and thought and complete com one's complete personhood. And that's part of why he uses this metaphor um, in, the, in the scripture. Um, but, and, and the scriptures are full of examples of what Lewis is talking about exactly here, aren't they? Yeah, the one that really jumped out at me, and <laughs> it's a really unpleasant piece of scripture. It's in Second Samuel where we hear the story of Amnon and Tamar. So they are half-siblings. They have the same father, different mother. And Amnon lusts after his sister, tricks her to get her to come to his bedroom, rapes her. And scripture actually even says in verse 15 of chapter 13, says, then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Mm -hmm. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. Mm -hmm. I'm hearing echoes of till we have faces. I'm hearing echoes of what Lewis just said about how a man treats a woman afterwards. Mm -hmm. It's brutal. Without question. And um, this is, I think, a book that Lewis could not have written years earlier, but having finally found fruition and... Um, and I think it was Joy Davidman, if we can take her poetry uh, to uh, to account. It was she who kind of initiated a physical relationship with him and brought that out of him. And it's if she hadn't, who knows if 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 she hadn't pursued him, who knows if if Lewis and, and Davidman would have gotten together. Never underestimate the power of a pushy American woman. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, and a woman who knows what she wants. And so I think that there's, uh, and this is, you can certainly see Lewis having experienced all four of these loves, um, especially when you read her love sonnets. Um, and, and it's, I think, really powerful in, and he's enunciating some of those principles here in this chapter. So now that we've seen what Venus is like on its own, we can clearly see the transforming power of Eros. Jack says, it wonderfully transforms a need pleasure into the most appreciative of all pleasures. In Eros, a need, at its most intense, sees the object most intensely as a thing admirable in herself, important far beyond her relation to the lover's need. And he says that this has really got to be experienced, to be believed. You know, why on earth would you desire a person more than what that person can give you? And he notes that this is hard to explain, but this is what lovers are saying when they say they want to eat each other. Hmm. And Andrew, is there another book that Lewis wrote where he speaks about the loving and the devouring being all the same thing? Absolutely. Mere Christianity, where he talks about the Holy Eucharist. <laughs> because the loving and the consuming there, and, and there's a Eucharistic nature to love. The love and the devouring were all the same thing, Orwell says, until we have <laughs> faces. <laughs> well done, Andrew. But this idea of consuming and not being consumed, 
the idea of the the perpetual life implied in the Eucharist and the Eucharistic offering that one could consume and yet never have enough and not in a grasping way, and that it's right to want to consume. I mean, yes, absolutely. And Orwell's big mistake is that she thinks that love, Aphrodite, Eros, that they are just devouring, but they devour in order to give us back to ourselves in the way that we really are. And in that echo with Lewis's second best book, Orwell says of Psyche, she was mine, she was mine, just like Pam and Michael in The Great Divorce. She says, don't you gods know what mine means? But it's only the gods. It's only Christ himself who knows how to devour us and yet allow us to be our true selves. So the devouring, the consumption, the completion, to be we want to be fully made Christ's own, right? He must increase, I must dis- decrease. So he must be fully born within me. And so he must devour. He must chew away all of the the bad that's in us and make his image perfect in us. And so that kind of devouring is at the center of so much Eucharistic uh, and Christological theology. I was noticing this section, David, is the section that more or less answers my question from earlier, the reorganizing. He mentions Mm -hmm. Venus is self-centered and Eros is other-centered. He mentions that Eros obliterates the distinction between giving and receiving. And if you think about it, that's what that's the transformation that's happening to Venus. It prior to the reorganizing of Eros, Venus is very self-centered. It's a pleasure, it's extinguished, it's a need pleasure. Now it becomes a appreciative pleasure. There is some receiving still, but there's some giving. It's about the other and not just yourself. And I think that might be the answer I was thinking of. And that gets unpacked in this next section. And I'm sure Andrew is going to have something to say about these opening lines. Without Eros, sexual desire, like every other desire, is a fact about ourselves. Within Eros, it is rather about the beloved. Andrew, do you have any particular sentence that you would like to share with us? Love is where we go out of ourselves to meet the other. Um, And in Norbert's work um, on conversion, we've been looking about how far back the idea of pride and self-centeredness goes with Lewis, and it's part of his conversion. And when he met the great lover of souls, he realized he had to abandon himself. And so it has to be outward facing. Um, Sexual pleasure has to be about pleasing the other. You know, loving has to be a focus on going on thinking about the other. It also, though, you know, especially in a romantic relationship, in a marriage relationship, there has to be place where I'm not just slavishly devoted to my wife, um, or maybe I am, but her devotion to me allows me to become who I truly am. And then I also want, um, as Lewis wrote in a in a dedication, the dedication to the great divorce um, that he wrote to to. Um, to Joy Davidman. Um, He said, there are three images I must continually abandon, my image of God, my image of others that I must abandon and replace with better images, my image of God, my image of others, and my image of myself. And so it's in marriage where I can be so ridiculous and so beloved that I can see myself for who I really am and alongside that incredible acceptance. And it allows it to mirror God's love for us while he seeks to make us who we really are. Um, it says in mere Christianity, our true selves are waiting for us in him. 
All Orwell wanted was herself, and that was empty. And when she abandoned that and wanted to love anything outside of herself, that's when she became her true self. And that's where she discovered love. And this love, Lewis says, becomes basically a mode of perception. He says, Eros becomes almost a mode of perception, entirely a mode of expression. It feels objective, something outside of us in the real world. That is why Eros, though the king of pleasures always at its height, has the air of regarding pleasure as a byproduct. To think about it would plunge us back into ourselves, in our own nervous system. It would kill Eros, as you can kill the finest mountain prospect by locating it in your retina and optic nerves. And this is very reminiscent of Samuel Alexander, and I think deserves a little bit of unpacking. What's Lewis saying here? I'll leave that more to Andrew, but I'll make one comment here. It reminds me a lot of you can't seek, how does he say it? You can't seek Christ for your own sake to like better yourself. You have to seek Christ for his own sake. You know, as a byproduct, oh, this is what he says. You can't seek Christ to find yourself. That's not going to work. You have to seek Christ for his own sake. And then the byproduct will be you will actually end up finding your authentic self. Um, but if that's what you're searching for, you're not going to actually get it. And it sounds like there's something here as well, a similar dynamic with Eros. If your byproduct is the pleasure side of it, you're missing the point. And you're, it's just not Eros. Well, absolutely. I also like the idea of looking in the mountain because there's that, um, there's that incident with Orwal and seeing the god of the mountain. And when she was on her knees, it's the only time that she could really see the, the, the god. Um, when she abandons herself, even just physically, it allows her to see who she really is. But I think that it it kind of um, leads back to the very end of mere Christianity, where he says, um, keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. And that's what you see in The Great Divorce, and that's what you see in Narnia, and that's what you see in Till We Have Faces, and that's what you see in your, in your own lives. If all I'm seeking to serve is myself and my own interests, I'll lose those for sure. But if I'm looking not only to my own interests, but also to the interests of others, and especially to the interests of Christ, I will not be able to help but Grab the morning star, as Wade of Glory uh, says, and with the morning star, everything else thrown in. And what I had in mind when I read that section was meditation in a tool shed. Of the looking course, at yeah. versus the looking along. If you're looking at a beam of light coming into the shed, it illuminates the shed, the dust molecules, and a few other things. But if you look along the light, mm -hmm. you see the sky, you see the clouds, and you see the sun. Mm-hmm. It's the enjoyed versus the contemplated, right? And I can't do both at once. And if I want to really understand and appreciate myself, I can't spend too much time contemplating that. I have to give that over. Um, God can enjoy and contemplate at the same time, although we can't. He can look at us and along us as well. So we spent most of this episode defining and describing but as we wrap up today, Lewis wants to submit his responses to certain moral questions, uh, all the while being open, as he says, to correction by better men, better lovers, and better Christians. And Jack considers the view that the chief spiritual danger of Eros, 
normally in these chapters, the dangers all come near the end. But he gets this one early. And he says that a lot of people consider the chief spiritual danger of Eros to come from its carnal element, from the Venus element within Eros. And he says that this view was widely held in the past, and as well as many people today, who he regards as unsophisticated. And under such a view, Eros is noblest and purest when Venus is minimized. However, he points out that St. Paul doesn't seem to think that this is a chief danger in marriage, that the chief danger is a soul-destroying surrender to the senses. Uh, the only thing that he says about Venus is in 1 Corinthians when he discourages prolonged abstinence. That's in chapter 7. But with regards to dangers, St. Paul instead speaks about the distractions of domesticity. He says that the unmarried man is anxious about the affairs of the Lord. Same with the unmarried woman. Uh, but the married man is anxious about worldly affairs, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the same for the wife. And Lewis concurs with this. He says that the gnat-like cloud of petty anxieties and decisions about the conduct of the next hour have interfered with my prayer more often than any passion or appetite whatever. Hmm. And Lewis, while he gives some deference to the medievals, he also notes that many of them were celibates and that they probably didn't know, this is where he says, they probably did not know what Eros does to our sexuality, how far from aggravating he reduces the nagging and addictive character of mere appetite. Hmm. So I wanted to knock that across to you guys. What is it about Eros that reduces this nagging character of mere appetite? I got nothing. <laughs> my head was you know, my head the whole time was at the the part before that the saint paul part i had a bunch of thoughts and comments and so i i probably tuned you out a little bit there at the end <laughs> okay well tell you what let's do that then we'll, we'll, let's yeah. let's talk about saint paul you have some questions we'll come back well, to my question i'm just a, i'm a little curious your guys' thoughts i i do appreciate that saint paul and lewis it sounds like made a good distinction that i wanted to highlight that the, the danger is almost like pleasing, getting so caught up in pleasing your significant other. Because when it, when I was first reading it and hearing about sometimes you can get caught up in the day-to-day -day life, part of me was a little hesitant when I read that because I know a number of married men that, yeah, unfortunately, they don't have quite as much time for prayer and the spiritual things as like I do. Like I, I, as a single male, I can allocate an hour to prayer. I can go to holy hour when I want. I can go to daily mass when I want. When I was you get uninterrupted of these, nights of sleep. You don't have yes. small children waking you up. Yes, but and I, I was thinking to myself, there's a different kind of spirituality and beauty and sanctification in the day to day of providing for your family, of mm -hmm. of putting themselves ahead of you. Of you know, you're you're up in the middle of the night with your child, and unfortunately, yeah, you can't wake up in the morning and pray, or, or it's a little tougher. You maybe you're just not as present, and you just don't have as much time, or you're have long hours because you you're trying to put your kids through education. So I guess I don't think he, they got, they got it wrong at all. I just thought that distinction was important in my mind. And I thought it was just kind of brushed over maybe a little bit too quickly. Um, it could come across as like, Oh, marriage is a distraction. Or I think it's actually a sanctification, sanctifying process of dying to yourself and kenosis. <laughs> well, and it's screw tape, right? I mean, Lewis talked about giving up the image for the, for a better image, um, and he he called it the opening paragraph of an unwritten book on iconoclasm. But I think that he's not giving icons their fair due. Uh, if I take my responsibilities well, my responsibility as a husband should be to love Kristen as Christ loves the church. 
I should see loving her as an icon of how I how Christ loves you know how Christ loves me and pays you know pays a price for me. And so fatherhood should also be an icon through which I see God's father heart for me and the ways that he the lengths to which he goes in order to love us. And so I think that whether single or 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 married in relationship or out of it I always have to look through the thing to see Christ behind it. Anything, any relationship should be on some really important level, a symbol of Christ and his love for me and my obligations to love God in return. And that's when it coalesces around the great commandments. And I think that's why Lewis is writing this book. And I would say that the repeated pattern we've had in this book is the chief features of the different kinds of love have also been their dangers because mm-hmm. they can be twisted. Mm-hmm. And I would say that, yes, you've, had, you've both hit the nail on the head. I would say that both marriage and fatherhood, they can be the very means to my sanctification. If you read the prayers of virtually every single marriage liturgy, that's what it's saying. The very means of my sanctification. But at the same time, it can also be a great danger. It is very easy when you are incredibly tired to just skip prayer and have a cup of coffee instead. It is very easy when you have been kept up late with a child with colic uh, to become short-tempered and take it out on your spouse. These have been the very means, not only of your sanctification, uh, but the opposite. Well, absolutely. And that's why I think Screwtape does such a good job at talking about what our crosses are to bear. Your crosses have changed since you've become a husband and a father. And if I see those difficulties as just my daily cross, then I can accept them and thank God that I can suffer these things. If I see them as interruptions to the things I really want for myself, those that, that can be powerfully dangerous. And this book, again, helps us to see through things to the reality behind them, which is Christ. Now, returning to my question, <laughs> in what way does Eros reduce the nagging character of mere appetite? I would say it's two things. One is simply satisfaction, because you get to enjoy Venus in marriage, which is great, Uh, but also because of the reordering that Eros has done in the process, because it's transitioned you from the thing itself to the person. And that just changes everything. It just changes the way that you look at the world. As you said before, it it becomes a mode of perception and expression. I totally agree and love that quote earlier in the book um, where Lewis says, not all kisses between lovers are lovers' kisses. Right. And so with a marriage, I get not only Eros and Venus, but I get Storgi and I get Philia. And so all of the loves become embodied and then and literally embodied. It's it's enfleshed in one person. And then it's, they sort themselves out to, to, to priorities. It's also a tremendous act of, of um, can be a tremendous act of discipleship. I need to be a better Christian if I'm going to love my wife well, and I'm going to want to do what I can to make her a better Christian. And so there's a way in which that thing becomes can become um, uh, central to all of our loves, which is, I think, part of why Christ, uh, why St. Paul uses that metaphor of us being Christ's bride. There was one section in here I wasn't quite sure about. Lewis says that the permanent temptation of marriage is not to sensuality, we've covered that, but quite bluntly, to avarice. Why do you think he says avarice? Greed. Hmm. 
The only thing I could think of is it is my least favorite and favorite chapter of Screwtape because it's regards to time and resources that I regard them as mine. Well, and Avarice, I mean, so overwhelming is Eros and its accompaniment Venus in its proper context that it would tend to make me want it for myself. And, you know, we're going to have a great time with severe mercy because avarice is what they suffered from. They wanted each other above all else and they wanted each other for their own sake. And so avarice makes me want to have things to have them for myself. It's like pride Mm -hmm. just wants to have more than, than the other. And so I think marriage can tempt me to think that if all I have is my wife and the overwhelming love that we have for each other, that's enough. And I don't even need God. Um, and so it turns into a false idol. It becomes a demon. And if it's such a divine love, Screwtape's going to want to screw with marriage. He's going to want to unwind that and make it into avarice or covetousness or lust or all the rest. He's going to want to turn it even just a little bit aside. And so I think that's part of it. And I think that Lewis's own experience, he wanted to have joy and wanted to have her all the time and um, and was, was struck by how little time that he got from her. So maybe he's speaking from his own experience as well. And so as we wrap up, what does Lewis think is the chief spiritual danger in Eros? Well, we're going to talk about that next episode (laughs) join us next (laughs) week when we're going to talk about (laughs) well done david well i do hear the last call here at the bear inn Uh, uh, we'd like to thank all of you for listening all of our patreon supporters particularly our top tier supporters anonymous bill and joanna snort bud shane john kevin brian k paul kimberly gillis gary stephen matt kelly chris john james kate peter david and rowdy well thank you for listening and please join us next time when we'll be going further up and further in cheers cheers cheers, cheers.